Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city of Detroit, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a content partner to the new GraceDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every week, so make sure you turn on those notifications. Today, we will be discussing police and community relations in Detroit, given the events of the past week, along with a couple of other items making headlines right now. Joining us for the discussion today is Yusuf Shakur, author and program director of the Michigan Roundtable for Diversity and Inclusion. Yusuf, welcome to the show. Oh man, I feel like a regular. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> Always. Also joining us is Teferi Brent. Teferi is the founder of Urban Excellence LLC, a co-founder of the Detroit 300. He is also the community reintegration coordinator for Goodwill Industries. Teferi, welcome to the show. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to the table. I'm not uh, I'm not with Goodwill anymore, by the way, but I, I do do contract work for Goodwill. Okay, Contractor great. for Goodwill Industries, consultant for Goodwill Industries. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Uh, we're at the top of the week. And so Donna, as always, how was your weekend? <laughs> My weekend was really good. Um, we, got, we got kitchen, um, and now we have one. Um, but <laughs> we adopted our kittens from somebody who rescues kittens. Oh, and wow. Was feral. It sounded like we had a jaguar in our home, and we were a little bit afraid of it. And so um, I read up on it and realized that you cannot tame every kitten. You cannot domesticate every kitten. Sometimes they are better off. It's more humane to leave them in the wild. Um, and he was just too afraid of us, and we were afraid of him. So we ended up returning him to his owner, and keep, well, the the owner actually does a good job with them, and so hopefully she can continue to um, help change his behavior so he's fully domesticated and he can't go to an adopted family. That's the goal. Um, but we do have one beautiful new kitten, and um, you know, new life in the home is always what's, what's his or her name? Smokey. Smokey. Oh, I like Smokey. it. Yeah. So we want to get one more kitten, and. Um, I want to call the other kitten the bandit, but or bandit, but you know, um, <laughs> you have to be old enough to understand that joke. I don't know if anybody else will get this on this call, but um, there's a TV show, movie, Smoking the Bandit. Okay, um, okay. I've heard of Smoking the Bandit. I have. I have. All right, all right. it is generational. But is. anyway, we are we're looking at getting a second kitten sometime in the future. But we did get one, and that was really good because last week was very stressful, and I realized the importance sometimes that pets play in helping to relieve stress. Uh, it's always great to care for um, people and things. So, look at you nesting with a fur baby. I love it. I love it. That's great. Uh, I spent my weekend in the uh, Be Me uh, Fellowship convening. <laughs> That was literally all weekend, and uh, it was really good. A lot of great information, specifically around how we uh, tend to, for the sake of you know, garnering resources and aligning with philanthropy's uh, priorities, deficit frame our work and deficit frame our communities. And the challenge this weekend was to flip that and asset frame our communities, leading with assets and talking about uh, the challenges that the communities we serve face to living their best life, 
but not leading with uh, a deficit-based narrative. It was really powerful. So uh, that that was it. Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm-hmm. all weekend long. So. <laughs> Um, let me ask you a question before we uh, move on. Can you describe what that fellowship is all about? I know a few people in the fellowship, and I don't understand it. I actually tried researching it and yeah. never understood it. Yeah, so uh, it is the Be Me Vanguard Fellowship. And what it, what it is, essentially, it is a network of Black leaders from cross sectors around the country coming together on a learning journey to talk about uh, number one, how we talk about our community, hence the the reference point earlier around asset framing versus deficit framing, but also teaching us, um, you know, about, uh, you know, branding is teaching us about how our culture and our community sort of interacts with itself versus other cultures. We had um, a really profound uh, opening session a few weeks ago uh, with Dr. Iris around uh, social determinants of health and how that disparately affects uh, communities of color, specifically Black communities. So really giving us, you know, this this purview and all of this knowledge around uh, assets, great things happening, uh, uh, the disadvantages happening, you know, that we that we are faced with. I see that Yusuf and uh, Teferi were original Be Me fellows back when it was only guys yeah and so started by Trabian Shorters out of um I think he started it in Philly uh some years back it's going strong Skillman Foundation is one of the funders and and make uh having a cohort from Detroit possible so it's really been amazing to this is the I've been in a lot of fellowships this is the first fellowship that I've been in with all black people so I was kind of like, I didn't know how to act. I'm like, okay, wow, this is us, but like, how do I show up to this? You know, I'm not used to this. Uh, for us, by us. And it was, it's, it's, it's been a dope experience thus far. So I, um, I actually was, uh, I met a few of the Be Me fellows. That's where I met um, 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 Miguel Pope, I think was one of the fellows. And at one point that came with a grant did you and um, Teferi receive grants? Yes, sir. Yes, I was I was uh, first recipient of the uh, fellow in terms yep. of that first cohort, and they sent depending on what your project was, uh, you definitely got a grant, but it it, it varied. Yeah, and I saw I met Taka through the um, the fellowship. I went to a convening at a hotel downtown and learned all about you guys. Um, I was just wondering how it changed through the years. Teferi, did you, you were in the same class? I was I think I was in the second class, but I was a part of the very first group that uh, when they got started. Uh, in fact, one of the first places they visited when it came to be me was flip, flip the script. Uh, when the, the Asian sister, what's her name? Yusuf, you you knew her well. I can't think of the sister's name, but the Asian sister who uh, who came to the city and really kind to uh, try to connect with people to establish the groundwork for it. But I think Yusuf may have been the very first point of contact. They came into the uh, came into Detroit, so yeah, I think I was a part of the second fellowship group that actually got money. I wasn't. I was the group after Usus in the group. Awesome. Well, so um, everybody has some connection to it, and um, three people have been fellows on this call. That's be awesome. me, family. Be me, bros. Be who? Be me. <laughs> be me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, right. we'll disclose years after the fact that I was a reviewer for one of the years also. So I got to select some fellows and that was also a really eye-opening experience, just looking at how people frame their responses and their um, development over the years. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really something. And then, you know, what, what's cool about it is there are no like job requirements or education requirements. So you really get a diverse pool of amazing people coming together having these conversations on this learning adventure is really dope. And I didn't know I was on the line with two uh, Be Me Bros. So uh, I'm, I'm in good company. Yeah, I appreciate y'all, man, yeah. for paving the way. Yeah, the, the second one, Yusuf, Yusuf was in Miami. I didn't have the privilege to, uh, to go to that one. I heard it was pretty awesome. <laughs> I went to the second one in, in D.C. And, and a couple after that. And uh, the one in D.C. was probably the, uh, that was probably the dopest dopest experience I've ever had with a, with a bunch of black men. It was really, uh, I haven't had an experience like that since then. It was, it was really uh, phenomenal. Having all the men together, hundreds of brothers together who are uh, in alignment when it comes to doing this work uh, th from throughout the country and being able to build a network and relationships with people to compare notes. Uh, some, of the brothers, some, some of the brothers I still talk to to this day when I want to get a feel for what's happening in Pittsburgh or, you know, in Cleveland or in some of the other communities. It's, uh, that was, that was pretty dope. All right. It is time for Fresh Off the Press news that we are thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Donna, Fresh Off the Press. Well, this comes out of ProPublica, Illinois, and it is a teenager didn't do her online schoolwork. So a judge sent her to juvenile detention. And um, that kind of caught my eye. It was published today at 4 a.m. by Judy Cohen. Hopefully the story gets picked up by Detroit Press. I guess it was, I'm sorry, it was co-published with the Detroit Free Press and Bridge Magazine. I just didn't see it there. Somebody posted it from... Um, um, ProPublica, so anyways, in both of those um, news journals. Uh, this is a story where a young girl with disabilities um, has an older mother and she had some behavior problems that the mother was frustrated with. So the mother called the police on her daughter for taking her grandmother's charger. And when the police came to her home, they saw that she had stolen an iPad from the school so the police ended up charging her and she ended up, you know, getting in the, the system, we'll say, and being monitored by the system. Um, then she took a cell phone that was returned from a classmate and she ended up before a judge right around the time where the shelter-in-place orders were enacted and the governor had said that she did not want people to be in juvenile detention unless it was absolutely necessary. So the judge sent her home and she was being monitored by a caseworker um, with the expectation that she do online homework every day. The issue is that she has ADHD and she needed um, a special um, accommodations in order to stay focused on her schoolwork. And so she was falling asleep and not doing the work as possible. And so the caseworker checked in with her and her mother on a daily basis. Monitored that she wasn't doing what she was supposed to do. And she ended up 
um, having her um, order revoked. They never checked with the school to evaluate whether or not she was doing the right thing. Um, but they did end up, you know, um, sending her back to juvenile. And the mother is very upset right now. Um, but I have to be really honest with you. It pains me to read a parent putting their child in the crosshairs. I'm sure the mother didn't know what she was doing. Um, but Oakland County has a track record of very poor treatment of juveniles. Um, and it, it's upsetting to me. So, so which, which high school was this? Groves High School in Birmingham Public Schools. Mm. And youngest two children graduated from Groves High School. Can you talk a little bit about their experience at Groves? I mean, their experience at Groves, um, they had me as an advocate, so they were going to have a good experience because, um, you know, I might be a little crazy when it comes to my children in school. <laughs> um, <laughs> But my experience was, you know, my son ran track at the school. And so I was the um, track parent, head of the track parents or whatever. And just talking to parents, what I found is that um, the students at Groves were marginalized, but it was friendly kind of racism. So people didn't necessarily believe it was racism because everybody loved you. They just might put you in the slow class or put you in the alternative school. But And parents actually bought into and believed a lot of this, right? that this is what my child is really all about. And so I would fight that and say, listen, you need to um, look at the system. You know, I'm talking to a parent whose child is in all of this trouble, but when he was in eighth grade, they put him in a um, diversion program inside the school, Project 3000, which was a horrible program. And he would tell his mother that he wasn't getting the right kind of education. He was being treated well. Mother dismissed what he said in favor of talking about what the school said and told him to follow the rules. And here's this very intelligent young man being uh, marginalized by an academic structure. And that's a problem in many suburban schools, if not most suburban schools that have more wealth. Um, so I think we need to really evaluate how racism shows up in the suburbs. It doesn't show up with um, hoods, right? Most of the time, that's not the way it is. It shows up by saying that your child is remedial and does not belong in even regular classrooms. You have in Oakland County um, these programs that they call schools, like Lincoln Alternative is the school, so-called school for children who have disabilities or children who don't perform well inside the school. They put them in there. Um, because it's not an actual school, there's no race and gender data to say who goes into Lincoln Alternative, but students who are Black inside of Birmingham schools know that those are Black kids, primarily Black males inside of that program. And so we're warehousing kids inside of a program where the instruction is delivered by computer. So before the EAA, Lincoln Alternative had decided we're going to teach kids via computer and they're not going to necessarily have access to high, highly um, qualified professionals teaching them on a regular basis. And again, there's no public reporting on how kids get in there. There's no monitoring of whether or not there's a just cause for putting them in there. That's what racism looks like inside of that district. So yeah. kids who are bad get worse. Parents are no longer acting as advocates and supporters because they are so busy in a lot of instances trying to fit in, trying to assimilate themselves and feel like good parents. And the belief system is so often trust in a system that does not love your kids. Um, we have not really figured out how to help parents transition to those systems where the districts do not love your kids. In Detroit, 
Detroit districts, you have teachers and professionals inside of every single school in Detroit that love your kids. Maybe not everybody, but somebody. But in a lot of these school districts, nobody's loving your kids. Your kids are the ones they never wanted in the first place who came in and changed the dynamics of the school. So it was um, deeply personal to me to see yet another young lady go through this problem and really being placed in the crosshairs by perhaps a well-intentioned but badly misguided mother. Yeah, the, the story also points out that Grace is Black in a predominantly white community and in a county where a disproportionate percentage of Black youth are involved with the juvenile justice system. You know, so there is something, you know, uh, broken here that we absolutely cannot ignore. So much so, so much so to the point where if she did not do her homework, she was in violation of probation? Like how, how is that ever, how is that okay? Yeah. I don't know, especially with her condition not even being taken into account, as you said, Donna, it is, it is absurd and asinine to me, but this is Oakland County. And right now um, in Oakland County, there is a, you know, a, a pretty hot race for Oakland County prose prosecutor happening. So uh, we'll we'll see, you know, what happens. Uh, the challenger, I can't think of her name right now, is a Democrat who is promising to change the culture um, um, in the Oakland County uh, Prosecutor's Office and have uh, roundtables and advisory councils that are uh, that are representative of Black folks and other folks of color that reside in Oakland County. I mean, we can we can only we can only hope and see though, right? But this is Jessica this Cooper is horrendous. Okay, yeah. And the the um, Children's Village sounds like a great place for children, but it's a children's prison. And there's so many young people. I know young people who went in in ninth grade and didn't get out until twelfth grade for very minor violations. I had one kid who was in a youth group and I used to teach Sunday um, Bible study on Sundays. And he went in in 10th grade and he was in there for six months for a very minor infraction. And when he came out, he was not the same. It's like the lights had been put out in his eyes. We've got to stop dimming the lights of our children. Criminal justice should be the last resort, not the first thing. And please, parents, if you are listening, please don't call the police on your children before you call a social worker, before you try to get them Talk about help, before you try to find a relative they can stay with who might be able to do a better job. The police should only be in very, very dire situations. This is part of the problem is that we call the police over For everything. And not understanding that the police are not really, you know, our friends. So that's my very emotional wake up call this morning to read that story and have flashbacks and just have so much compassion for the girl and a little bit of compassion for the mother because I don't think she understood what she was doing. Yeah, you know, our, our youth, man, I, I'm thinking about the 10 year old last year, was that last year who was charged uh, with assault for a dodgeball game or something like that? That was the Wayne County prosecutor. That's another race where there's a challenger, right? Yeah, yeah that's a hot race. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we got to do better. Uh, Teferi or Brent, uh, Teferi or Yusuf, you guys have any uh, input on this story? Um, I would just add in terms of the, the backdrop is the community work that need to be done. Uh, again, we, we talk about it, you know, creating spaces where um, folks feel comfortable enough to share those, those, those traumas and 
whatnot. I mean, this story is very um, hit home for me in terms of, you know, at the age of 15, my mother made me a ward of the state. And the backdrop to the story, like there was no no folks in the community that she felt comfortable enough to Donna's point that, hey, who will help me? And, and you know, she didn't believe in the system, but like, hey, I'm, I need to save my son, right? And so what are the other uh, sincere and authentic, authentic alternatives that we're, options that we're giving mothers and grandmothers and, and fathers and whatnot to, to raise healthy children in healthy communities? Yeah, and you know what, Yusuf, I've, I've of course been reading your, your story. And in your story, I did have compassion for you and your mother because I could see where both of you were really struggling at the time without the proper resources in the community that did not invest in uh, black families. And so uh, I, I do want to acknowledge that. Um, when your mother made that decision, I'm not saying, and I'm not, I don't have a standing in there, but I could empathize with the decision that she made because she was afraid for your life. Mm -hmm. um, let me just say that fear for your life is very much different than at least what's being reported in this story and the conditions could have been a lot worse, but the mother said the child rarely missed a day of school. She was involved in her church. She was involved in extracurricular activities and she snatched her grandmother's charger. And so there's a degree of um, fear that just does not feel to be matched in that situation. And kids swipe stuff. I mean, goodness. Goodness. Yeah, but, I, but I, the black kids aren't allowed to do that. And, and, and the issue here is a couple of different things. I appreciate Yusuf making, making that point because even once you have, in regards to creating a community or a safety net to help uh, identify and capture and then help to transform, work with and equip uh, young African children you know, who run into challenges or has some behavioral uh, difficulties or whatever the case may be, once you, you know, once there are individuals even in that community, then have to do the work, you know, uh, to try to identify who and what those resources are, or those resources have to do a better job and make it themselves accessible to our families, right? Because a lot of our families, especially if, they, if they're living in impoverished conditions, they don't have the wherewithal, the time or the access or the equipment, if you may, to even identify or search for those researchers. And it's sort of almost elitist. You know, when I talk to a lot of folks, they're like, well, how come they just didn't? I said, why do you automatically assume that they have one, the resources, time, or capacity to do that? That's you from your elitist, racist position, assuming that folks have the time and the resources because they don't understand what it's like to live in these conditions, right? Like, even for me, I come up in uh, three neighborhoods concurrently, Brightmore, the North End, and Highland Park, you know, and I live on, on North End to this day, and I lived with my moms in Brightmore for a long time. And uh, uh, one of the things she did, because she was concerned for my life and how I was living and the things I was getting involved in, she took me to Fellowship Chapel. You know, that's how I met Reverend Anthony when I was a child. And she mm -hmm. took me there trying to save my life Right, she was trying to find resources. She took me as a teenager to Clementine Barfield and save our sons and daughters, which I then became an activist and a grief counselor and a part of their program, you know, working with her and, and being mentored and coming up under Dr. O. Henderson. I'm saying, so <clears throat> first, those resources to Brother Yusuf's point, they have to exist and be authentic and genuine. And then we have to make sure, you know, our parents, um, our parents have access and wherewithal to even search for those resources 
and or make sure those resources bring themselves or make themselves accessible and exposed to the brothers and sisters in our communities uh, who may be in need of that. But I think in regards to that situation in Birmingham grows, I mean, in Birmingham, that's just, that's just all about white supremacists criminalizing black people, especially black children. They do not see our children in the same light that they see their own children. I work with a, with a, with a, with a, with a person at Ford and uh, uh, her, uh, her son, who was a teenager, robbed at gunpoint a gas station. Do you know what the police did with him? They took him home to her. He robbed the gas station. They brought him home to her. He had come get your son. Put him in a couple classes. They did not instantaneously criminalize him. So with our children, because our children aren't allowed to be human, they're definitely not allowed to be children, they immediately criminalized them. And that's what they're doing with this baby. I agree with you. I think that um, a couple things, um, and I, you know, um, I've been a single parent um, with three kids who were um, going through trauma um, at the time of my divorce. I know how hard it is to be a single parent. And um, I know how hard it is to deal with kids and to raise them. Um, so I'm not meaning to judge them. Um, my daughter and I had an interesting back and forth where she felt like I was being judgmental of this mother and not understanding this mother's um, challenge. Down that. I, I want to be clear though. I'm, I'm sorry. I wasn't, I wasn't directing that towards you. I'm oh. just talking about a bunch of other people. You know how they always say in our community, how come they didn't? That's not, I, I wasn't even thinking about you when I said that. Oh, no, I know. I'm just saying. I that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the fact that you cleared that up because I'm not um, being judgmental. <laughs> But I do think that suburban parents need to decolonize their minds because a lot of times you start taking on the attitudes and the mindset of white supremacy when you raise your children in those environments. And to the extent that you have internalized those belief patterns and you've accepted certain treatment of your children, I do want to hold parents accountable for understanding and not forgetting where they came from and who they are just because they're living there. And I'm saying this as somebody who lived there with them you cannot forget who you are and leave your children here. A lot of times we like to look at racism like it's something that used to be. And we live out there and we say, oh, I don't see race, just like white people say they don't see race. And your child cannot afford for you not to see their race when they are attending schools like that. I completely agree. I completely yeah, agree. I, I do want to move on. I don't, and I'm not, this is not in response to you, Teferi. This is actually probably in response to my daughter. I don't know if she's listening, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we have some robust conversations in my family. And I think that I do have a lot of compassion for parents who don't have what they need. Um, and I also mm -hmm. understand that the issues are very different when you are working and raising your child in the suburb. And one of the challenges is that when you are there, you're not always turning to a fellowship chapel or a SOSAD or a, ch a track team or a football team or a coach or somebody else who can help raise your child. The police will never be your friends in raising your children. They cannot help you raise your child. And that's period. Fresh conditioning. I'm sorry to That's it. We need to change that conditioning too. I think. Um, one of the beautiful things about Brother Yusuf's institution that he's building right in the middle of 08 is that now people have a visible, tangible alternative, right? Something they can see. They know that's the Freedom House. That's the Liberation House. That's the Healing House. That's the Love House. That's the Peace House. That's the Reconciliation House, right? So it's just so important that 
we change the you know change the way that our people think about addressing uh, issues that our children are wrestling with, right? And um, I think a lot of people, especially in those environments, have been conditioned to believe, you know, that wrong behavior can be handled through law enforcement, and mainly because they're uh, the people. And you made a good point, Donna, about how adults are so busy trying to assimilate, uh, because people who live in those environments around them have, you know, that's been okay for them. They can call the police because police, again, they're going to bring your children home when they rob the gas station down the street. So for them, poli the police department and law enforcement, law enforcement is a place of refuge. But as black people, we have to understand no matter uh, how much money we make, no matter what neighborhood we move in, no matter how <laughs> successful we think we are, the police are not our friends. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, speaking of challenges uh, that our children are facing, fresh off the press, protesters kept some students from first day of in-person summer school in Detroit. Uh, this is Chalkbeat Detroit reporting, uh, Lori Higgins and Eleanor Catalico uh, uh, is reporting from Chalkbeat Detroit. And so, uh, you know, much to the dismay of many in a, in a very controversial landscape here in the United States, Detroit Public Schools Community District decided to open uh, about 23 buildings for summer school classes. Yesterday, uh, protesters began to gather at one of the bus terminals that would be transporting students into the schools and block the buses from actually uh, being able to get out. Um, and so, the district yesterday uh, was expecting about 2,000 students to show up in buildings uh, for in-person instruction, and the turnout was around 500. And I'm not sure if that's due to the uh, the the term the buses not being able to pick up the students from that particular terminal. Of course, there are more than one term more than one terminal here in the city. Uh, Dr. Vitti. Um, you know, sort of took to Twitter, uh, Donna, and yesterday he said these words, last night and this morning, I reflected and prayed on the balance between the concerns of protesters and the needs of our children and families. This is hard. When I visited schools this morning, I knew we were doing the right thing for children. COVID is not going away. Many of our children need face-to-face -face direct engagement. We cannot make that a requirement for all children and families. Parents should be able to choose face-to-face -face or online. So uh, a lot of talk about school reopenings. Detroit went ahead and opened schools. What say you? I'm going to let others go. Yusuf, Terry, I'm still thinking about it. It's a travesty. I mean, no other way to to call it. Um, but he, what you just read is 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 irresponsible in my opinion. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds good. Uh, I mean, COVID's not going to go. Yeah, it's not going to go away. But we still dealing with it. You know, it, it's it's claiming lies. It's, there's a up um a spike in it. So to to say that in particular for uh black children, black families, and also the protesters. The protesters are, are black people or, or or people in general that has a heart for what's going on. I think um, my question is, you know, what research did they really do um, in terms of uh, evaluating and what was pulling the need to, to rush back? And it feels very um, Tus Tuskegee-like, you know, in terms of experimenting. I, I think, I, and I think the coronavirus is too novel for us to really you know, confidently say that 
we can do this and we can do it safely, especially when it comes to uh, gathering uh, children. You know, there was a series of tweets and there is a board, there is a Detroit Public School Community District board meeting happening uh, tonight, today, Tuesday. Uh, but, you know, you know, there's some, a teacher came out with a series of tweets talking about questions that she and her colleagues had that went unanswered around keeping teachers and children safe that, in my opinion, was not adequately answered. And so when uh, these tweets went viral, the community, the Detroit Public School Community District tweeted and just said, we would like to clarify some of these points, please call our communications office. Why not clarify them on the platform where it's spreading? You know what I mean? So it, it seems very, uh, I don't know, it just seems very weird. Hush, hush. Some, some policies are out in public. Some policies aren't. Um, I'm not sure about the sustainability of this. I do agree. And, you know, the other thing, too, is uh, what I don't appreciate about Dr. Vitti's statement is it sort of weaponizes what we know to be true about a lot of our children. And that is, yes, our children do need face-to-face -face instruction to thrive. Yes, all of our children do not thrive in an online learning environment. But to use that to sort of def defend this, what I believe is a premature reopening is just disingenuous and irresponsible in my opinion. I don't know, what do yeah, you say? Yeah, I think that, I, I think that um, um, first of all, what they, they said, first they said, you know, um, call it, call the communications office and then they responded with um, sharing a 40 or 50 page report on reopening schools and that just made no sense to me. Um, so I think that that's one thing. I think that, you know, the fact that what they used to justify it was a, a, an opinion poll. They say they conducted a teachers and students finding that a number of people wanted in school class on both parents and students. Um, I think we have to decide whether public health is based on public opinion or public health is based on science. And if okay, it's based on public opinion, then when the Macomb County Sheriff says he is not going to enforce the wearing of masks because the public opinion in, in Macomb County um, does not support a mask, uh, then we have a problem. And it starts with the top, starting with the President of the United States. Um, the only final thing I'm going to say, and I know that Teferi has a comment afterwards, but the final thing I'm going to say about this comment is that it is an injustice, in my opinion, that the Return to Learning Task Force that the state convened did not include a single administrator from Detroit Public Schools and had samplings of administrators from other school districts across the state. Um, how could you leave Detroit Public School leadership out of that um, conversation because perhaps they could have been influenced by some of the dialogue that was taking place. But when you're left on a ship by yourself, this is the largest school district in the state of Michigan. And you're telling me we don't have anybody smart enough or worth bringing into that leadership um, dialogue. So that's my other um, response is that this is the, a failure of the governor to collaborate with the district in making sure we figure out what policies are. Yeah, it was very disrespectful. And, um, and really, is racist. I mean, I don't, I don't, don't know other way to put it. I don't know Gretchen Whitmer uh, personally, uh, but she's been horrifically tone deaf when it comes to 
uh, a lot of the issues that directly impact our community when it comes to her, mis her mistreatment of the uh, of, of the brothers and sisters in the Michigan Department of Correction uh, and in uh, the county jail system during COVID-19. She was horrifically responsive to that. We had to force her. Uh, uh, and then uh, even with this, with you, to your point, Sister Donna, in regards to the task force, I mean, and, and then the other part of that, for you to even just give the list at the very last minute to Tanya Allen was just horrific and disrespectful and, and sneaky and dirty. Because um, what it does is now, and this is what we do to black people often, especially black women, now it can look to many people as if what well, she's the chair, she's the head, and how does she allow that to happen? You know, but what they did to her wasn't respectful and professional. You know, and it's uh, and she was able to then get people on some of the secondary teams, you know. But at that point in time, not on the primary team, and it's just uh, Don. I got a lot of ill feelings about that. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I don't understand how you don't have Dr. Bland or Ironetta Wright or Dr. Vitti on that task force. That's just that's unimaginable to me, uh, and, and it's racist. It's just racist, Don. Dr. Bland is not a. Um... He is not an administrator in DPS. He is an excellent school administrator, but he's not an administrator in DPS. So I think that they could have used his voice. He certainly does a great job. Yeah. But you don't include somebody from DPS and his administrator and then say, well, we got a student. How dare you bring a student How dare you? into this um, scenario? And, and I'm not, okay, a student in, from DPS into this scenario and say he can be a spokesperson. He cannot and no. he should and he cannot influence school policy. So I think that um, this is another example of why she should not be um, videotaped with buffs on and she, we need to stop playing that song because <laughs> the reality is that, um, <laughs> and see I said buffs on Orlando, but. Uh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I will not, I still can't, I can't unsee that. Oh my yeah. God. Yes, yeah, it's, it's nowhere in the world that, that she should have had that task force without being on the task force. Yeah. It's, it's right. nowhere in the world. You so, know, but as far as the overall thing, if I made this, this a couple quick words, uh, uh, I didn't know about the protesters being out there. I think I think I think uh, I understand. I understand exactly why they were there. And and for me, I mean, uh, when one understands the disease and how it works in children, chil number one, it killed children in New York. That's number one, that particular strain, which was the Italian strain in New York, it killed people. Number two, uh, what we do know from epidemiologists here in the state of Michigan, that what they found in our children is that our children tend to be carriers. So the, although they may have no symptoms, they may not get really sick, our children carry it so aggressively. And my concern is not just with our babies, but uh, the elders and some of the uh, some of the more exposed and vulnerable people that they go back home to, right? So I think it's a very uh, irresponsible and uh, and thoughtless in many regards decision, you know, to uh, to even uh, introduce that option to our families and to our community. I, I just I don't understand that one. Right, and I, I just have one thing. I know we have to move on, but I just want to also say that they poll teachers. Did they poll custodians? Did they right. poll? school secretaries um, are given, and they say they did poll families. And they're saying you have the option of appearing in person or online, but can a school open in person without a custodian, without a school engineer, without, um, without um, the receptionist in the office? And so um, I'm wondering what happens to those 
those people, if they say, I don't want to work because I feel vulnerable, do they have the option of saying no? And maybe they do, but I think that the what we've seen is that people on the front line are most likely people, the paraprofessionals who must be in place in order for schools to open. A lot of those people don't have the option of not working. And when you call them back to work, they lose um, their unemployment if they refuse to work or they could possibly use that. So I'd like to learn more about how that's impacting and how that's impacting bus drivers and other support staff who are not always treated as um, given the, the privileges of making decisions. Um, I do want to make sure, because I understand that Yusuf has a hard stop, and we want to get into conversation as well um, about what's been going on with policing in the city of Detroit. Um, I think that we have um, a number of opinions right here in this um, conversation, but um, Yusuf, you took a pretty strong position after the um, Mr. Littleton, Hakeem Littleton, is that his name? Yes. Okay. Yes. After he was um, shot, you took a pretty um, strong position that the police should have acted differently. And I want to make sure that we give you an opportunity to clarify what that position is, because I'm not sure I understood or we had dialogue around it. Oh, I appreciate that. So I don't think the police are hired to murder. Um, I think we all can agree on that. And I know in the reality that that comes with, with the job sometimes, unfortunately, but I strong, I strongly believe the way that after the, after fact in, in terms of, um, we are realizing objectively that Hakeem had a gun, he shot at him, um, that the way it came off as sanctioning his murder, all right, it was cool to shooting or not only shooting, but shot, shot in the head. And it was disturbing to me because of, the climate that we're in and the climate of being black in America and what that messaging could, could continue to convey to us as if it was okay to, to, to kill this, this young brother. And there's a lot of um, dynamics that, that need to be discussed and, and that's 10 shows in itself, right? Or 10 panels, but just, just the, the nature of the situation. And I always hate qualifying um, what, what, what possibly happened in black and white communities versus in black communities. But the unfortunate reality in America, we don't we don't see see that. So again, and I just you know conclude on this. I know within my job, if someone comes in my office and cusses me out, you know I'm still required to be peaceful. I'm still required to to engage with them in, at some level of professionalism. So as professionals, there there's a requirement there. Um, again, when you look at the the way him him trying to run, it's like all all, all of us grew up in in Detroit, right? We know certain things. Uh, shooting at the police is not is not a normal situation by, by by any means so anytime that happens first thing like man that guy, he got to be crazy he on drugs or something and then also to see that he's tempting to try to run tell conveys a lot there for me so you know if i if i can jump in like uh uh yusuf i i really i really hear what you're saying when you say that uh because uh, Hakeem shot at folk at the, at the cops and the cops in turn shot back um, killing him that there is you know a feeling of the, that murder was sanctioned and I, I tend to agree with you in fact that the loss of life is tragic and it no no murder should have to happen I I completely agree with that and it's and I don't believe in you know uh 
this murder is justified and that murder is justified. But I do, uh, uh, I am of the mindset that when um, someone is shooting at you, uh, uh, not even just police, but at an arm, armed citizen um, or an armed cop, some firepower is going to return um, when when somebody is trying to kill you, is trying to hurt you. And so um, I, I think that police acted in the way that they had been trained to, you know, diffuse that situation and save the life of, you know, an officer who could very closely came to um, being hit. And I do want to also touch on the, the mental health piece of this conversation. Um, I'm not sure if Akeem was clinically mentally ill, and but I do believe that we should be having a conversation about mental health. And I don't conflate mental health with mental illness. I think that how we are brought up, our influences, and how we are socialized in the internalization of uh, narratives, all kinds of narratives, shape the way that we show up in tense situations like that. And so living in a country where we have literally seen cops uh, choke out uh, Black folks uh, around the country, and these cops are coming to get a friend of his, I can, I can see how his mental health state probably wasn't in the best place. So I agree with you that no, this, no murder is sanctioned, no murder is okay. But I do believe that there was cause to return firepower to uh, this young man shooting at the cops. Barry? I mean, for me, I'm, Yusuf and I, we've had an intimate conversation about this offline. Uh, it's, uh, it, it breaks my heart. Uh, I, I've been a part of so many of, of these, not just, you know, cops uh, uh, shooting, uh, our young people, but just young people shooting young people. Uh, so it just, you know, I, I can't get beyond him being, you know, a 19-year-old young man uh, who is not here and who has not been given the opportunity to transform. So I'm, I'm highly sensitive uh, to that. And, and it's really hard for me to even have a discussion, you know, without consideration for that young brother and for the trauma that's been caused, that is, that is uh, being experienced by all the onlookers, the witnesses, the family, and the uh, and his own brother. I think he has a couple brothers. Um, so first of all, I'm, I'm very, very sensitive to that. And the condolences goes out to the family. And, and we're going to do some things to try to support and, and help the family as well. Um, <clears throat> in regards to, I think the question for me, and one can always argue, you know, over uh, procedures and can procedures be changed? And they definitely can. They can surely be optimized. I think this based upon, you know, I have the, uh, I have the use of force procedure and uh, I read through it uh, uh, intimately over the last couple of days, you know, just in response to this and then the chokehold of Sister Nakia uh, that followed, you know, uh, afterwards during the protest and just, you know, both of those cases. Uh, well, first, Nakia's case, I was clearly a violation of police pr procedure, uh, but in regards to the shooting, uh, that that was that was a procedural shoot. Um, uh, could there have been another way? I mean, we have seen instances throughout the country where there was another way. I think for me, Sister Donna and Brother Orlando, and, and you should not talk about this. 
what really hurts me is I all I keep seeing is that black man, that officer who was charging, who got shot at. I keep seeing that black man, that father, that husband, that son, uh, you know, being in the casket as well. And and then the, for that brother to have charged him, he didn't even pull his he didn't pull his firearm. You know, for him to have charged a man without his firearm, I think there's something to, you know to be said about that. I think the story um, was profoundly different than what we heard initially, you know, in regards to the young brother being unarmed and there had been like 30 shots pumped into him. And I'd even heard one shot that the officer was standing over with a 12 gauge shotgun and shot him with a 12 gauge. And, you know, but to know that uh, uh, brother Hakeem had discharged his weapon, you know, four times and then four shots were returned, you know, for me, just understanding the procedures I think it was a, a procedural shooting and, and the response was understandable, especially because in the fact that, you know, the brother, just think about it, Sister Donna, he, he went into his pocket, he did not get shot. He pulled his gun out, he did not get shot. He racked his gun, he did not get shot. There was no shooting until the brother actually pulled the trigger uh, at the head of the, uh, at the, head of the, uh, the, the black officer that, that, that had charged him. So I think there was some restraint there. Uh, I think that was uh, unusual. And I think that was extraordinary in regards to the, the restraint because they could have shot him. We see this all the time. They could have shot him with his hands in his pocket, right? They definitely could have shot him when he pulled his gun out. And they definitely could have shot him when he racked his weapon. But they didn't shoot him until he shot. So I just think um, that makes it for me hard to, to, to say that uh, the officer's response was not the appropriate response. But again, it, I can't have these discussions without thinking about this 19-year-old brother not being here to transform his life. You know, I just can't. I mean, it's a, it's a systems failure when we, when we think about him. I'm sorry, Donna, go ahead. I just want to get to say this before Yusuf goes. I'm just conscious of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so Yusuf, how long do, you, how long do we have? Well, I'll push you a couple minutes. Um, okay. All right, so I'll wait until you make your point. I just wanted to make sure I had time. No, I was just saying that uh, it is in a moratorium on the system, how the system continues to fail and break something in our Black youth, particularly our Black males. And I also want to just, you know, talk about humanizing this young man, like say his name, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like in the chief's uh, presser, I actually was with him in the very beginning, tone-wise, when he said, certainly, you know, a loss of life is tragic. I'm praying for his mom, and I'm praying for uh, his family. And then he never said Akeem's name, the suspect. Um, I think it is on par uh, with white supremacist ideals to remove identity from us and assign us these, these this, this criminality when how we show up is again a culmination of our experiences and exchanges with this system, right? So, yeah. So um, I, I just want to um, say a couple things. One, uh, I think that was a great, great um, example for why we need to defund police. Actually, we need to take the funding we're spending, some of the funding we're spending on police and spend it on prevention so he does not end up on that street with that gun shooting at that cop in the first place, right? And we don't have enough supports for those activities. Um, at the same time, I believe that every human being has a fundamental right to self-defense. 
And if you can show me that somebody's shooting an automatic weapon at your head, semi-automatic weapon at your head, does not pose a danger to your life, an actual critical danger to your life and the life of those around you, because it's not just the one cop who would be shooting at, but anybody within range could have been shot once the shooting begins. Um, if you could show me that you could protect and you can defend your life without killing him, then I'm fine, use something else. But I'm not certain that I know that that's the case. And so could injuring him stop him from shooting? I don't know, maybe it would. If you shoot him in the knee, would that stop him from shooting somebody else? I have no idea. But it seems to me that once he was intent on the killing of somebody, and when you shoot at somebody's head, it seems like you're intent on the killing of somebody, um, that he had to be stopped. And that is a very unfortunate circumstance. I think, number one, nobody should celebrate the killing of anybody. Right. And I think that, number two, um, we need to look at how he got to be here and how our systems failed him along the way. But I think, number three, we have to protect the narrative of the Black Lives Matter movement, which began when unarmed, non-dangerous Black people were killed by people who were walking by and just shooting at them. The minute the movement becomes a movement to say that no Black life should be taken under any circumstance is the movement, is the time when the other people are able to peel away support and say, see, these people are extreme. They don't understand the right to this person's life. And I think that you lose the moral clarity that you need um, so I'm not, I'm not saying celebrate, but I am saying that saying that a police officer, police officer shooting back in self-defense is what's wrong with the police state, changes the narrative in a way that makes it difficult to continue building the kind of momentum we need to build for police change. And I started seeing it in responses to some people. So if we're looking at and I know that during other movements, people have been very clear about narratives and how we address things so that we're very clear and we stay on message. The message would be to me, defund the police because we aren't spending enough money to prevent things like this, as well as there's a fundamental right to self-defense and we should be pointing out that if a bullet gets fired, that's the trigger that says you defend yourself. And in this instance, I think that um, in, in some conversations, what I heard was um, what felt like attacks on people who are strongly in support of changes to policing and at the same time felt like there was a self-defense issue that was being ignored. I want to I respond real quick before I get off. Um, fundamentally, I'm against police by every fiber of my bone. And with, with that being said, I think fundamentally we have to understand like the position, and I'm gonna narrow it like black, black poor folks are treated totally different on every level, especially to the police. So, so let's not even go to, to what we see the most extreme with, with, with our king. Let's go to the lesser extremes. I've witnessed, I've experienced when the police come in, they, they've entered our community so many times, dang, I thought you'd be in prison now, or you, or you got, or when did you get out? Oh, I thought you'd be dead. I mean, this is the mentality of officers, white officers, black officers, and none of them say anything in terms of procedures of, of what my humanity is like, right? And so, uh, and, and protecting, like for me, the position of 
our humanity, you know, defending that. Like we can we can get behind closed doors. Hey, Yusef, you was wrong. You shouldn't have did this and, and that. Because fundamentally, the blue is going to always support the blue. The system is always going to support the system. And being able to 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 uh, fight through that narrative. I didn't listen to the Chief Hollywood Craig uh, press conference, but um, someone said no, he, he called dude uh, American hero. He called him American hero. So so if he's American hero, what is what is Hakeem? I mean, it's the same thing with, with Kwame. I ain't a big Kwame fan, but when, when the way they, they uh, assassinated his character was assassination on black people in, in, in this city. The assassination of, of, of Hakeem's character is assassination. You know, I'm I'm, he was wronged in a mother, mother having that pistol, right? I, I could say, you know, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to stop my cousin, right? <laughs> but I mean, you know, just for family's sakes, right? Having deep conversation, but I think in terms of um, the the deeper meaning of Black life, I think that's what that's whether the movement of what we say Black Lives Matter, because that's what we we've never felt from our forced arrival here in sixteen nineteen, and, and just making sure that 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 accountability that we want to have is in respect to our humanity. Completely agree with that, Yusuf. And I think that helping to even frame the conversation to explain how racist policing helped him get to that point, helped Hakeem get to that point, is important. The feeling of devaluation, the tremendous fear, all of that, I think highlighting his humanity and some of the background stuff, and I think avoiding the kind of hyperbole that ends up treating police who shoot and kill somebody as heroes or whatever. It was a tragic circumstance and nobody should be celebrating the response. And I think the only difference that we may have, and I hope we can get um, to some agreement, is that those, of pe those people, there are many people who are not celebrating him being killed, who believe it's tragic and also believe that the officers did not have a choice at the moment that they shot him. Um, if they were going to defend themselves. And hopefully we can agree that that is not going to be a point of contention that divides the movement. Again, it's just, um, I think we, we're intelligent enough and like where, I, where I'm, I'm struggling and fighting through is principally um, and pushing us to think deeper, critically, like let's examine scientifically all the circumstances. And I don't, I don't necessarily see that. And so to your, to your larger point, of making sure that we're not um, undermining our movement. Like even when people are saying like, he deserved to be shot. Like he just wasn't shot. He was shot in the head. That's that's a different scenario, right? You know, I mean, at least an animal could get more you know, more respect than that. Like, I mean, he got shot in the leg or the back and he bled to death. Like those, even I, I wouldn't accept that. I can rationalize that, but shot multiple times in the head. So to the safari point, he shot at him, he shot at him. Again, I mean, like this is what we sign up for as as military. This is what we sign up for officers. Do they deserve to die? Absolutely, they do not deserve to die. However, they put themselves in the line of fire. Same way in the work that we do. We put ourselves in the line of fire in some capacity. So there's an expectation for us. If if we have no expectation, no standards, there's chaos. And and, and the way that they enter our in our, our communities, um they jump, they jumped out on them guys, but also like to fight out talked offline. The first first responsibility of the police is to control that environment. If you're not part of this scene, you need to get the hell away to protect the interest. So so that's another part of the conversation is not being talked about where those those officers for some reason did not control that situation so they could address it that Hakeem possibly could have been uh, still here 
if they'd done that? I you, I want to talk a little bit about I I don't I don't disagree, but I also think you know to tack on to this conversation, um, I want to talk about the relationship that the Detroit Police Department has with citizens in the city of Detroit, the way that people were able to organize so quickly around that scenario, giving competing narratives, but still showed up and hit the streets, says to me that there is something different going on on the streets versus what James Craig and Mike Duggan has been saying around Detroit is a different city. Detroit doesn't have these problems. Detroit has a great relation. Detroit police have a great relationship with the community. Where, where are y'all in, in, on this spectrum? So before I get off, um, I mean, that's that's a, that's a fallacy, um, you know. From my perspective, I see. I mean, just shit, last last year, um, you know, I, I had to intervene. You know, fortunate to, to it it, it could have happened right on Dexter, Dexter in the Boulevard. It it was it was a group of young folks, man, and it, and it was a group of police, and I was I was on my way to Ann Arbor <laughs> to finish the last class in 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 numerous numerous situations. So I mean, in, in reality, I think the. And and it's not an indictment on every cop, man, because there's those you no know, safari can contested this that you pull to the side, you and, and you guys as well. You know, there's good relationships, right? They live in the city, they grew up in the city, they just they're just cops. But then then there's a group of cops who just who who function like they're John Wayne. And I think they they represent how Hollywood Craig function. Um, you know, you pull your gun out and you just shoot the niggas. I mean, that that's a feel the the feeling that that you get, and and, and this is the in the ethos of a policing that we all have experienced directly or indirectly. And I think, um, you know, Hollywood Craig, you know, he's a good spokesperson, but his 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 speak doesn't reflect the reality of what people are experiencing at the bottom in this city. I, I got, Thank you, Yusuf. Thank Thanks you so much for joining us. I want to give Teferi uh, a chance to respond. Um, well, in that particular instance, I mean, I was on a lot of those text messages and I know how people were moving. And uh, you had a group that was going to protest the, uh, the mayor's mansion that day, right? And then, of course, uh, Brother Tristan and his group, they were already in the streets. I think that day they were actually going to be on the east side, but they had already been on seven miles for most of the week. So it wasn't really hard to mobilize folk. And then uh, the community folk were already outraged. They were moving organically on their own, just, you know, by virtue of what was happening. You know, so that's one of the reasons why, you know, you got folks there so quick because there was already a lot of movement around that anyway. And then when it hit social media, you know, that, that's one of the benefits of social media, you can mobilize people. I've seen young people organize a thousand people in less than two hours on Twitter. You know, so um, that's just the time that we live in. Uh, I think in regards to the narrative, the narrative was profoundly different for that case because it was in the community with full of black folks. I mean, so there were a lot of black people there, but I spoke to some folks yesterday and they were saying you still had a large contingency of, of, of white folks in the group, but there were more black folks at that protest than any of the others without question. Um, I still feel the way I feel about the first 14 days, definitely the first eight days that I participated in downtown. It was 80% white folks from the suburbs. I had conversations, I got a video, I got film. I was there, I got tear gas five times. 
I was in the mix on the front lines. So I know, I know what it was. No one can tell me, you know, so that narrative is still very real because I experienced it. I saw it. Uh, but I think, yeah, without question, there's a profound difference between what happened on Six Mile San Juan and what was happening with the earlier, earlier marches and demonstrations. Can we talk about um, the relationship the community has with police from your perspective, Teferi? Uh, I, think, I think it varies, right? So I think uh, the, uh, when you look at the amount of, I, I tend to deal with data, right? And I try to make data-driven decisions. So when you look at the amount of, you know, police reports uh, made against police for misconduct, it's extremely high, especially in four, especially in four or five uh, uh, districts throughout the city. I mean, it's still a high amount of folks who are complaining about police misconduct and mistreatment, and then that cannot be devalued or disrespected or disregarded. That's real. Uh, so we have some issues. Teferi, your audio is a little off. Can you check that? Okay. Can you hear me now? Uh, it's a little better. Yeah. And so, so you still have a high number of police reports made against, uh, made by community against police officers that cannot be disregarded or disvalued or just a, 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 a disrespected. Uh, that's legitimate. So that reflects the fact that they're are some legitimate problems with DPD, especially from the uh, from the perspective and from the experiences of people in this community, which is why you see so many police uh, police complaints being filed, so many community complaints being filed against police officers. Um, we just had an instance um, where our article came out in 2019, late 2019, about 74 officers who lied, right? Um, uh, 54 of them for sure, where these officers could be considered giggly impaired. That is horrific. That's a major issue. Those officers, they lied during our testimonies in criminal cases should be fired. and should be removed from the force. You know, that's one of my demands. Uh, that's a serious, serious issue. That speaks to a problem with the police culture in the city of Detroit. That's undeniable. I say, but then on the other end of that, when you look at it as far as the actual issue of police officers killing unarmed black folk and shooting folk in the city of Detroit, the data says, uh, Detroit is at 2.6 per 100,000, which puts them in the bottom 10 in regards to all of the police departments throughout the country, in regards to actual police shootings that result in the death of a citizen. They are amongst the best. They're in the bottom 10, right? I'm saying, so when you look at the data, there are some things that reflect uh, some positive things coming out of the consent decrees. And that's what a lot of people aren't talking about. It's not that the DPD is so heck of on their own. They were forced to be that way, or they were forced to improve their procedures, policies, and behaviors because they were they signed up under two consent decrees for a decade. Really, three: use of force, jailing conditions, and false testimonies. And we're not even really having it. It just came from under that in 2014, between 1995 and 2000, Orlando. The DPD had killed 40 people. If this uprising had happened in Detroit in early 2000, the city would have burned down without question. And all of us would have been in the streets, COVID or not, because that's just how we view DPD. So thank God for community activists and organizers. 
you know, uh, challenging uh, Dennis Archer and challenging the police department and the Department of Justice, you know, to bring those consent decrees on DPD to address a lot of those issues. We gotta realize we had 67, we had 92 Malice Green. So Detroit is not new to this. We have been in this fight against police brutality for a very long time. We had Ron Scott, right? You know, we had a Kwame Kenyatta. We had people who have who have actively held the police department accountable for years. You know, so I think that is what colors, you know, our experiences here with, with, with the police in Detroit, because we've been checking them and challenging them for so many years. We never stopped holding them accountable. I think I think I have a question about um, whether or not you believe protesters should be released from jail. Um, I know that the city council president has said no. Um, she cited the fact that many of the protesters are not from here and justification for keeping them jailed. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's, I mean they have a constitutional right to protest. I mean, so I think constitutionally, I mean, what do they do that at? <laughs> protests are getting released all over the country. For years, they've been getting released. I mean, that's just a part of the game, if you may. So I don't, I, I'm not into holding folks indefinitely, you know, because they were protesting. I do think in Detroit, like a lot of other cities, you have an element uh, who have who have thrown projectiles at officers. I think if folks get caught doing some foolish shit, you know, excuse my language, doing something stupid like that, then you know they gotta they they, they you know they gotta deal with what they uh, introduced themselves to. You know, they have to be held accountable for that. If they get caught throwing things like uh, railroad nails and and I have pictures of some of this stuff and rocks and and all that stuff at at other uh, human beings. Then you know that that is assault technically. So I have an issue with that because and, and this and I've held, I've talked to organizers about this is that when you have, when you allow people uh, in your group to hurl projectiles at the police, you put your own people at risk. Are you? So that's um, why I've marched many many times and I've never had I've never had anyone and I've marched with hundreds and thousands of people as well for the years. I've never had any, we've never had anyone throw anything at anybody. It wasn't allowed. Yeah. We were allowed. But you know, there were 127 people who were arrested walking down Gratiot who weren't throwing anything. The police told them to disperse. Their, their crime was breaking a curfew. The police surrounded them, told them to disperse, but surrounded them so they could not disperse. And they arrested all of them. And on that day, Tristan Taylor was held initially they said that he was going to be charged with inciting a riot even though there was no riot and um then they said okay we're not going to do that because i don't think the prosecutor's office agreed to those charges so then they said the law department would be filing some type of charges my question is not when people break laws and i think hurling projectiles is a is illegal i'm guessing you know um but when you're walking and marching past the curfew, that's a sort of statute, um, that status offense. It's not really a legal offense. And so my question is, what about those people? Um, again, the, the justification the city has used is they were here and they didn't necessarily live in Detroit, according to the city. Is that um, a rationale? People, it's illegal to march in Detroit if you don't live here? 
No, I thought I answered that. I said I, I don't. I, I said initially. I said right. I don't support. I don't support that. It's unconstitutional. I'm right. saying, I, don't, I don't. I don't. I don't believe we should lock people up for protesting. And and, and I don't believe in in in, uh, in creating charges or creating you know laws for them they readily violate so you can justify locking them up. I don't believe none of that foolishness. Right? All oh, those are games. Those are instruments and mechanisms of control. You know. So no, I, I don't believe in that. I don't support that either. Thank you. All right. I uh, want to thank uh, Teferi for coming on the show today. I mean, and, and Yusuf Shakur. I mean, what a great and robust discussion. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit or email us at authenticallydetroit.com. Donna, do you have anything else or shout outs? Well, I do want to um, actually follow up with the fairy. We want to have you back on because you did talk a lot about what's going on with the police, but you're doing a lot of very interesting work in the community. And what I hear a lot of people say is, why don't people march when it's not a police shooting? Why don't people march when black people are killing black people? And you're one of the people I always use to illustrate the fact that black people get involved in apprehending black criminals all of the time when it comes to public safety. I know that you have made public safety and protecting our community a big part of your mission above and beyond your job title. So I do want to actually have give you an opportunity in the future to come and share that with us. Are you um, open to that? Yeah, I, I'll come whenever, whenever whenever you want me to come. This is one of the shows that I would, uh, I would definitely uh, support and, 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 and I would have no issue with being a part of it. Okay, we're having some audio problems. Um, so, um, so I think we're going to now move on. And um, so, in terms of my shout outs, um, I'm going to let you go first, Orlando. Yeah, I want to shout. I want to shout out the entire uh, 2020 cohort of the BME community. Uh, you folks uh, are new friends and new family already, and I am so honored to be able to share space with you guys. I want to shout out uh, the We Built This series that Urban Consulate is sponsoring this week, and everybody that I have had the opportunity to interview and will be interviewing uh, tonight and tomorrow night. Uh, you all are amazing black folks doing amazing community building work in your various communities and I'm honored to share space with you each night uh, this week. Also, I want to shout out all of the storytellers. So a lot of folks uh, listened to the uh, podcast last week when we broadcasted live from the Building the Engine of Community Development Forum on uh, gentrification. So shout out to all of the storytellers who bravely told their stories of, of gentrification in their neighborhoods and everyone involved, the developers who came on to offer their perspective as well as some of the commentators um, and everyone who logged in. Donna? Yeah, um, I would like to shout out to um, the Detroit 21 um, for, and in particular, the Kresge Foundation and the Ford Foundation now supporting our work in um, envisioning the rebuilding of our communities using um, sustainability and resilience practices. Um, when we came together two years ago, um, we were lots of organizations. And what we've been able to do over the past couple of years is become one very strong and influential voice 
speaking on behalf of justice. And there's a longstanding criticism in community development that community development organizations are really only uh, um, interested in bricks and mortar, are really only interested in um, partnering with people outside the community and are sometimes the tools of city government. What we've been able to do has been to collaborate on policy change and um, you'll see some things in the very near future that are a direct reflection of our advocacy. I think we wrote a very strong letter um, speaking in support of the protest and that was authored by Pastor Larry Simmons and um, supported by the entire group or if everybody didn't support it, nobody had the courage to say they didn't because it was a very strong statement. I'm just joking. I think we all did support it. And so um, I'd like to shout out my colleagues in community development. I'm very proud to be in this space at this moment in time. All right. Thank you so much. That wraps up this episode of Authentically Detroit. We thank you for listening and we want you to catch the wave. <music>